This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. It's hard to come up with like different intros because we're, I just looked, we're at episode 308, which is what this one is. And uh, yeah, I, I try to not do the same thing over and over, but it just, it's so comfortable. So anyways, welcome, welcome. Hopefully this is not your first time listening to the show, but if it is, welcome on board. There's uh, 307 of these things you got to uh, dive into <laughs> in order to, uh, you know, be caught up with the narrative. No, I'm just kidding. You can dive in whenever you want to, and it's uh, it's fine. So what are we doing here? We're talking to people involved in independent music, whether it is behind the scenes, which is actually what we are doing today, people that are involved with record labels and such, or if it's, uh, you know, people on stage, people performing in bands and all that fun stuff. Today is a friend of mine, Lisa Gerlich, who, um, yeah, I met a couple years ago and uh, struck up a friendship with her, uh, you know, professionally speaking. But then I was like, oh, yeah, like, you know what's up. You're, you're fun to hang out with. And uh, she's a great human being. And I've a- actually joked with a lot of my friends who have appeared on the show where sometimes the people who are closest to me and would be good guests, I always kind of push back. I'm like, Oh yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get to them eventually. I'll get to them eventually. And now, you know, some six years into the show, I'm like, wait a minute. Like if I don't do this now, then, you know, I may just end up pushing it back to where I'll never actually have that conversation. And that is not what I want to do. So Let's get some uh, some business pleasantries on the, the top of your brain, and on the top of your brain should be Rockabilia. If you are ever looking for merchandise for any band, trust me, they have half a million items. It's unbelievable their choices that they have. You need to use this code PCJabberJaw. That will get you fifteen percent off whatever your order is. Like you know, say you're ordering a thousand dollars worth of merch. Basically, I, I took care of like three hooded sweatshirts for you there. Which, if you're ordering a thousand dollars of merch, that is a baller move. But Rockabilia has been a strong supporter of this show and all of the Jabberjaw shows, and I can't thank them enough. But their customer service is top notch. Their products are officially licensed, so the bands get paid. The quality is high. It's just great across the board. Okay, Rockabilia. That should be just anytime you're being like, oh yeah, I want, I want to get some band merch. Boom. Top of mind right there. Rockabilia. I was about to snap, but, uh, I realized that that may not be picked up. Well, maybe I'll try it. Yeah, it probably did. But anyways, thank you, Rockabilia. You are the best. And, uh, uh yeah, I, what, what do I got for you? I got the fact that, uh, there's a lot of new music coming out and I really enjoy that fact. And I, um, I, I think many people wrestle around with like how to discover new music, you know? Once you reach a certain age in your life, it just becomes harder to, you know, engage and make sure that you're staying on top of every single record coming out. And, you know, I'm whatever, I'm 37 years old and it happens to me all the time where it's just like, um, it's mostly due to like large major label releases. I'm like, like churches, they just came out with it or chiverches. <laughs> they just came out with a new record. I had no idea until Apple was like, Hey, you should, uh, you should pay attention to this. I'm like, oh yes, I should, because I listened to the hell out of their last record. So, um, yeah, discovery is tough. You know, I think the best way is, uh, a kind of mishmash of a lot of different things, you know, posting on social media, making sure that you're talking to your friends about what records they're listening to. And then, uh, you know, having the algorithms that spit back at you. But then also I had this weird experience this weekend where I was at a farmer's market with my fam and wow, with my fam that I guess that 
that just sounded right. But then I said it and I'm like, no, no, with my family, with my fam, who am I? Am I a 14 year old boy? No. Anyways, I was with my family at a farmer's market. And then I heard, uh, you know, this, this soft sort of, you know, bony bear S carry music kind of coming from a, a corner. And I saw that it was a, a dude with his guitar kind of noodling around singing. And I was like, that's really good. And I actually, you know, it, it, he was just performing for the people there at the uh, farmer's market. And I, uh, you know, got, got five bucks, tossed it in his guitar case, took out the CD and, uh, it's called the Northern state. If you want to Google him, you can find him relatively easily. There's also another band called Northern state, but you, I think you just have to be open to it is what I'm saying. You have to be open to the idea of listening and being exposed and being surprised by new music. And that's, uh, you know, I think some people, you know, get into that pattern where they're just, they, they just don't care and they're not engaging. And I think that's when you close yourself off, you know, and that's, I don't want anybody to get to that spot. You shouldn't be there. You know, I don't care how old you are. You shouldn't be to the spot where you feel like, like, oh, I've, I've learned everything I need to. It's like, no, no, you're continually learning. Even when you're, you know, 95 years old, you are still learning about your life. So anyways, there's a little motivational, (laughs) motivational speech for you this week. But anyways, Lisa is, uh, yeah, she's done a lot. She's worked in PR. She's worked at labels. She manages bands, tiny moving parts in particular. And uh, she's also helped out a lot of other bands in the past. But uh, I just thought that she'd be a great uh, interview for this uh, this series. We're closing out the themed month of awesome women in independent music. And uh, I just I, I wanted to have her on. So that's what we did. All right. Here is my discussion with Lisa. And I will talk to you after the episode. Again. I think officially when you were with uh, Big Picture, when you, I, I think you had just, you'd maybe been out here in LA like less than a year, I think. You were still kind of getting your feet wet out here, if I'm not mistaken. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I, we, we had a beautiful lunch at uh, Mohawk Bend, if I'm not mistaken. But, uh, right. Wow. Yeah, I know. Nice. I, I try to remember these things. <laughs> much better than I am. <laughs> it's okay. I guess, I guess I'm just not that important to you. Thanks, Lisa. I'm just kidding. Oh, I'm no. just kidding. <laughs> hey, how long has it been since we've known each other? I'm just on the podcast. Come on, Ray. I, true. That's turn about, <laughs> turn about is fair play. I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, well, I appreciate you having me. <laughs> but um, what what kind of struck me about you know you when we first started to correspond was like yeah you were working in PR at Big Picture Media but then you know you also had the label that you were doing at the time and you were also you know starting to manage bands and um, I just always I mean I I definitely think it's symptomatic in uh, independent music that people don't do do one thing you do like forty things. Um, mm-hmm. But the, uh, you know, the hustle I, I noticed in you where I'm like, okay, cool. Like you clearly are, you know, in this to win this, whatever that may mean. But <laughs> was the, uh, was the, was the hustle that was kind of like in you just, uh, something that was kind of a byproduct of who you are, or is that kind of what you always knew you wanted to do in order to sort of differentiate yourself from other people that were also pursuing the same interests or, you know, where, where's that kind of come from? I think it just came from like the DIY music scene. Cause like, you know, I grew up, I know you uh, interviewed my friend Erica a few weeks ago and she touched on a lot of the bands that I also grew up listening to, like all the street punk stuff, like the unseen and 
lower class brats and all of that music was kind of where I found my start. And, you know, my whole thing was if you like it and you want to be a part of it and you want to see it, like no one else is going to do it for you. So you have to do it yourself. So I started putting on shows when I was 15 in my hometown. And then from there I started booking shows in Philly because I grew up in South Jersey. A promoter from Philly saw what I was doing and was like, hey, do you want to come be my partner in Philly? So I started doing shows for all the street punk bands in Philly when they came through. And then it just kind of grew from there. And it just was like, you know, I don't know. I love ska, but Jersey was very big in ska in the early 2000s. And it was like, if you wanted to see something besides ska, you had to do it yourself. Sure. No, that's true. I I don't really think of it in those terms of the, if like you don't feel like your music, the music that you're into is represented, like you really do have to kind of, you know, take the reins and be like, I'm going to put on this particular show because yeah, it's just dominated by one music scene or another. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of, there's a lot of similar stories out there. You know, other labels started that way. Um, That's how I work at Equal Vision now. That's how Equal Vision started was, you know, uh, shelter just being like, I want to put out my own music because no one else is going to do it. And now, 25 years later, it's a large company with a full staff and so much more and put out a lot of releases just starting from someone being like, hey, you know, no one else is going to do it. I'll do it myself. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it, I'm jumping around here because you know, normally I kind of, you know, go backwards in, in a person's life. But, you know, you mm-hmm. did mention the... Um, the you know the, the street punk scene being really um, formative for you, and it's always weird. Like, well, it's weird to me just because um, uh, you know I experienced it uh, from like selling records at a independent record store. Like, you know, those like casualties and all those bands were were just huge. Mm-hmm. And you know, I went to a couple of those shows, but it was it always. Um, it just kind of blew my mind because it seemed like this this scene existed in plain sight. But then there was no, there was no real uh, discerning how um, how these bands kind of grew. Like I mean, I remember like you know Cheap Sex and bands that were on like Virus Records and stuff like that. It was just like it, it felt like they came out of nowhere, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, they're drawing like three, four hundred people in most major cities, and like I don't know, it just seemed um, it, it seemed really strange to me. But then also I understood from the Southern California perspective. But then here you are on the East coast and kind of, you know, getting introduced to it as well. And so I, I mean, what was your entry point with that, that particular style of music? I don't even, I don't even know. Like it might've been through anti-flag because like I I got into punk music because my cousin made me a mix CD and it was like, you know, at the time I'd been listening to like Newfound Glory and Blake 22 and he's like, well, here's Rancid and No Effects. And I think from there it kind of like went to anti-flag and then I dove deeper, like, you know, um, I mean, you know, there were like message boards back then was how you found out about new music and shows. So I was on a couple of Philly based message boards and that's how I found out about a lot of stuff. And probably through live shows, I just fell into that scene. Um, I used all like the, uh, what were the name of those websites? Lime, um, LimeWire and all those file sharing websites? No, no, no like all the <laughs> online stores. Um, oh, Inter- Interpunk? Interpunk, yeah. yeah. I used to go on Interpunk and just buy things like, yeah, I got it, like I got into Oi because I just bought like a CD off Interpunk and I was like, 
oh, I like this and went from there. And it it is something that I, you know, did notice too, where it was, um, as far as the, uh, you know, the, the gender, uh, orientation of that particular music scene, it, it definitely seemed very kind of, you know, 50, 50 split. Like, uh, I, granted I, I'm not an expert at it and I didn't do a demographic <laughs> research on it, but it always seemed like just from, you know, anecdotally speaking, the people that, you know, I was noticing it, 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 you know, girls were just as included as guys more so than like, you know, whatever a, you know, male dominated like punk or hardcore scene that, you know, I kind of experienced in Orange County. But like, did you kind of feel that way or notice that as well or no? I don't think I noticed it at the time, but looking back, like it was a very friendly atmosphere. Like I had, it was like, it was, it was like gender diverse, but like it was very LGBT friendly as well. Um, because if people just didn't care, they're like, if you like the music and you're, uh, and you're want to be a part of it, then come on in. And that was it. There was like no questions asked. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I, and I guess because of the, um, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to be reductive over this, but like the sort of, you know, costumed appeal of the, uh, you know, the fact that y- you could do crazy stuff with your appearance and, um, you know, uh, appear not only uh, stylistically, but then aesthetically, like we're, we don't have anything to do with uh, any of these other music scenes because, you know, we, we have Liberty Spikes and we have, you know, crazy, you know, polka dot hair and stuff like that it could be, even though that is, you know, scary for most people to like dive into, uh, you know, I could see once you get exposed to it, where it's just like, oh yeah, I can be as expressive as I want. Yeah, I mean, that was there. I definitely did, like, leopard print eyeshadow. There's lots of photos of me wearing, like, two to three belts, and, like, I would make my own skirts, and, yeah, it was, like, it was a thing, And but, like, all my friends were into it, and, you know, I didn't have friends from my high school that were into it, but, like, I found people, and we kind of banded together, and those are people that, 15 years later, are still my best friends. No, that's cool. And I just, I, I don't often get to, you know, do a deep dive with the, that particular music scene just because, um, <laughs> you know, it's not, it, sometimes people are, you know, look back on their, their childhood music experiences and are just like, oh yeah, I was into this thing for a couple of years and that's kind of it. But you know, you gotta, you gotta wave your flag. <laughs> oh, I'm down. Like I still listen to some of that. I was listening to the unseen, like a week or two ago after I listened to your podcast with Erica, I went back and listened to a bunch of the music, like the Devochkas were, I was obsessed with. <laughs> that's that right. was awesome. Totally. I remember that band. Wow. That's funny. I haven't thought about them in a long time. Mm-hmm. Well, they were formed and there's been some controversy. I don't know. Some, I don't know. The one thing about that scene, like during that time, super prevalent was like sharps versus Nazis. And I was friends with a lot of the sharp community and growing up in, Southern Jersey and going to those shows in Philly, there was a Nazi presence from like Keystone State Skins. And then uh, Atlantic City had a big Nazi population that would try and come into Philadelphia. And yeah, it was, it got intense for a while. Interesting. I didn't, I mean, I knew that there was always kind of contingents in major metropolitan areas, but I didn't know that it kind of spilled over to where it was actually happening at shows. Yeah, they would they would show up or there would be threats and then the sharps would be there to counteract it. Um, but then once they kind of got scared out, the sharps, it it got like a little intense where like it was almost a witch hunt for Nazis and like everyone was a Nazi and it it became a lot, but like there were good intentions when it started. 
Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean that definitely being from Southern California, it was always, um, this weird undercurrent. Like there were just certain venues out here that always Mm -hmm. kind of had those, um, you know, they weren't explicitly marketed as like white power nights or anything like that, but it had, but yeah, it was like, there's this venue that was in garden or I think in garden Grove, I don't know. It was called Mm -hmm. Linda's doll hut. And I just always remember, like, I never went to a show there, but it was always kind of, you know, understood that bands that played there that were of the, you know, punk variety, you know, definitely had their, uh, their white is right leanings where it was like, Oh, okay. I don't, I don't need to be there. (laughs) And did you have like a group, like a, um, like an anti-racist group that would counteract that or was it just allowed to go on? It's, it's a good question. I think it was one of those things where, uh, as long as it was, as it was kind of relegated to a certain corner and it wasn't, um, I guess allowed to spread too much. It's like, you know, if there's mm-hmm. 80 people showing up at these shows and like, they're not actually going to, you know, whatever the glass house or any of these other venues, then, um, you know, maybe they were just left to their own, you know, their own closet, so to speak. But yeah, that wow. is, I know, I don't know. I mean, I, I wasn't uh, at the forefront of, you know, any anti-racist group or action. I mean, obviously I, I didn't agree, <laughs> didn't agree with yeah. you, but it was, uh, I, I think a lot of it too, just because it was always kind of simmering since the you know early '80s, and uh, you know once the LA punk scene broke and stuff, I think a lot of people just kind of like, oh yeah, well like you know, we we beat them back in the early '80s, so maybe we just don't need to worry about it as much. That's wild. Yeah, it's interesting to hear because you know I just had that that experience, and I figured that was everywhere, but that I knew that area is very populated, like the Northeast. Certain areas are very populated with. Uh, Nazi culture, yeah. white power culture. No, that's true. Very that's, weird. Yeah, that is, no, that is a good point. I mean, especially in those because something that you know that the Northeast has on you know most other parts of the country is like there's actual history there, as opposed to you know Southern California, where it's like, well, yeah, you know, we we got some stuff, but you know, we do, you guys have hundreds of years. You guys have a lot more time on us from a Northeast perspective. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. And it's not as uh, diverse in a lot of ways, too. I feel like since moving to Southern California, it's really cool to see the culture here and how different populations bring what they're doing to the music, and it's really cool. True. Yeah, good point, good point. Um, so like you mentioned, you grew up in, in South Jersey, just kind of a stone's throw from, from Philly. What what city in particular were you, did you uh, come up in? I grew up in Voorhees, New Jersey. Got it. It's uh, right next to Cherry Hill. That's kind of what the pinpoint always was. Sure, sure. And people always ask what uh, what exit off the turnpike. Oh, four. four. Number four. There yeah. you go. <laughs> right by the mall. Right by the mall. One uh, of the many. <laughs> of course, the the cultural hubs. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what was your family makeup like? Like mom and dad in the house, brothers and sisters? Yeah, my mom and dad were in the house. Um, my mom was a workaholic, which is probably where I got it from. And my dad had every hobby under the sun, so he was always really busy. And, you know, I was kind of given the freedom to do whatever to a point, um, which I definitely uh, exercised a lot (laughs) growing up. (laughs) Sure. And uh, when you say every hobby under the sun, like, was he turning these hobbies into, like, you know, uh, like gigs for a little bit? Or was this just something he was always tinkering on, on something? He was always tinkering on something. He had like a wood shop. He had like a garden. He, uh, my parents had a boat that they would like, he'd be constantly working on. It was just like, you know, there was always something new or he was doing, he used to do stained glass art as well. Just like very creative, but also like 
doing a million different things. Sure. And, and very labor intensive too. Yeah. Like yeah, work, for working, sure. working with your hands. Mm-hmm. That, uh, and that was something that like, were you interested in at all? Or was that something that just like, Oh, like that's cool that my parents are into it, but like, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to work with this stuff. Uh, I've seen some of it translate now that I'm older. Like there are certain things I like to do. Um, like for one of our artists at EDR, um, their album cover was a VHS tape. So I made, I just looked it up on the internet and learned how to make VHS lamps and we use those for prizes where it's just like, you know, being able to do stuff with your hands is cool and fun, but you know, I don't always find the time to do it. Right. Right. Well, that's cool. Yeah. If you can feel like you could be uh, crafty in some way, like, you know, some people look at that as sort of like, Oh, it's, that's cheesy if you're into crafts and it's like, well, no, if you know how to build something, it's pretty cool. It's cool. There's some, some other things that I'm starting to play with, um, more ways to like build the technology and, um, there's like electrical paint that you can use to paint things and then make them more interactive with touch. Oh, like, like hypercolor. <laughs> if you're familiar with that. I'm not. No, <laughs> I think that's definitely a, a generational divide <laughs> where okay. I think this was uh, there was this clothing company called Genera and they had uh, like hypercolor. It was like, you know, sweatshirts, whatever, like kids that were, you know, whatever to the ages of eight and 12 in the mm-hmm. late eighties, early nineties. And you would touch it and it would change color. And that was like the coolest thing ever that kids started to wear. And yeah, Genera Hypercolor. Google it. It'll be fun. <laughs> I will. That sounds awesome. I, yeah. I love bringing in like older technologies too and trying to find ways to like reappropriate them. Yeah. No, that's cool. And did you, uh, were you an only child or do you have brothers and sisters? I was an only child. Ah, yes. I, I, mm. I, I knew there was a reason why I liked you. <laughs> <laughs> It's not the response I usually get. It's usually like, oh, you are. And I'm like, yeah, it's not my fault. Like, what? <laughs> right. we, we, do, we do get made fun of. Like, I mean, not like actively, mm-hmm. but people definitely um, look at your ex- experience being an only child and are just like, oh, like, how, how'd you turn out normal? Like, <laughs> it's like, well, I did, but <laughs> right, right. It's like, it may, not, it may not be normal, like by your definition, but like, yeah, like I, I know how to communicate and talk to people. Yeah. Simple functions are fine. <laughs> I got those down. Totally. So were you, because of the kind of, you know, only child stereotype, were you, um, like, you know, reclusive? Did you kind of like hang out by yourself or did you, you know, find your outlet in other places or, you know, did you feel comfortable in groups of people i was definitely the kind of person that found solace in the music and then just found a group of people that liked what i liked and hung out with them and like you know i was not home that often when as soon as i got a car i was like never around um would always go to philly and like hang out with my friends who did live in jersey but we went to shows together in philly and it was like i don't know so i did I did find that community and like really like grow in it. Um, now that I'm older, I'm way more reclusive, but I think that's just like something you do when you're older. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, it's harder to have adult friends like as you, uh, I mean, I think most people that are involved in independent music, when you interact with people that don't have that communal experience, they kind of, you know, look at, the, the way that you have cultivated friendships and are just like, Oh, how long have you know that person? And you're like, Oh, I don't know, like 20, 20 years. And they're like, Whoa, that's weird. Like, did you go to school with them? It's like, no, nah, I just met him at a no. show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Met him at a show. No, that's literally like my best friends from back home. Like 
I talk to them every day and they still live in Philly, but you know, it's like, those are the people that know me the best. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. Um, and so, you know, as you started to, um, kind of develop who you were, your identity and everything like that, um, you know, how did you, how'd you kind of find yourself, you know, navigating through, you know, high school? Like, were you, you know, attracted to the arts? Did you care about school? Where'd you put yourself? I liked school. I took like AP classes and did the whole thing. And yeah, it was like, I don't know. I've always been like a goody two shoes, despite the fact that I have like bleach blonde hair and like leopard print skirts. I would always like love math and English and all of that. Got it. And you, and like, did your, um, you know, I guess did your teachers and sort of, you know, adults in your life look at the stuff that you were getting into as being something that they were concerned about for you? They were like, Oh, Lisa, Lisa's, you know, she's into some weird stuff. Like, uh, should we, should we pay close attention or <laughs> I did find my mom's stack of uh, self-help books at one point about having a uh, troubled teen. Um, <laughs> which, you know, it's kind of ridiculous, but like, I, I get that she was like trying to understand it, you know? Sure, um, sure. but like I got good grades. Um, I drank, but I didn't like to drugs. So I was like, I was teen pretty much for someone in my age, I guess. But mm-hmm. like, you know, I would run away on the weekends sure. and like, I don't know what my mom would think I was doing, but I was just going to shows and drinking and having fun with my friends. So right. it was fine. I was, but- generally safe but you know yeah but it, but it sounded like you had a a good sense about what you could uh, get away with versus what you could get in trouble with oh i still got in plenty of trouble but it oh. wasn't like life ending tr- oh i was grounded a lot okay, um okay. <laughs> but like you know um i would say i was staying at a friend's house and then i would go to philly and stay with uh, a friend in philly with like there would be like a bunch of us would go to someone's house for the weekend and just go to a show and then drink and party and I'd go home on Sunday. Got it. And then your mom was like, where were you? And you were I was like, like, I was at Jennifer's or whoever, you know? Sure. I was having a celebrity party. It's like all weekend. Come on. <laughs> oh yeah. Like years later, we've tried to talk about it, but I'm like, I don't want to really know what you think I was doing. And I don't want to tell you cause it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, well, there definitely is the statute of limitations where I, I think, <laughs> I think once you're like your, your mid to late thirties, you can kind of, you know, cop to some things that you might've been embarrassed about a little bit earlier in your life. I'm close to that. I'm not there yet, but I'm close. There's yeah. been a few things like a couple of, of house parties I had when they were away that I've caught to. Um, (laughs) that's what yeah and then they can look at like oh i I see why that thing was broken or i see why our house just didn't feel the same when we came back yeah i had to be super thorough like i would find all the cigarette butts and like throw them out like i would go through the backyard and find them so that no one else would find them it was it's all about attention to detail One of the best parts of this podcast is talking about stuff that I genuinely enjoy and has made my life better, and I want it to do the same for you. HelloFresh is exactly that thing. It is a meal delivery kit service that shops, plans, and delivers your favorite step-by-step recipes with pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. They got three plans to choose from, classic, veggie, and family. I do the veggie. I actually, It's super easy to veganize it because I am vegan myself. And each box is delivered right to your door in recyclable, insulated packaging made up of fresh, responsibly obtained ingredients from carefully selected farms and high-rated, trusted sources. 
Plus, the simple recipes outlined on the pictured step-by-step instruction cards, you can feel confident in your cooking. There's lots of one-pot recipes which require minimal cleanup. I love those. So you can spend less time meal planning and grocery shopping each week and get that time back to do more of what you love, which is like, you know, hanging out with your family or hanging out with your friends. I love HelloFresh so much. I have been a customer of it for, gosh, I don't know, over a year. And it is so much fun because sometimes I'm able to prepare it on my own. Sometimes I prepare it with my wife. Sometimes my son even contributes. He actually, last week, we did a little uh, you know bowl of farro and greens and all this amazing stuff. He was able to, to slice and dice with me. He's seven years old. You know, I'm not going to give him a very, very sharp knife, but you know, he was able to, uh, to contribute and do some stuff. So I don't care how scared you are of cooking. You will be able to do this, and I love HelloFresh so, so much. And what I want to do is give you $30 off your first week Visit HelloFresh.com slash Words30 and enter the code Words30. That's HelloFresh.com slash Words30. Offer code Words30 and I will give you $30 off your first shipment. It's amazing. Trust me. I'm buying you dinner essentially, okay? I love HelloFresh. Go do it right now, okay? Now on with the show. That kind of goes back to what I was first kind of noticing about you is that you definitely have that... um the uh, ability to kind of focus on things in ways that, um, you know, when you're doing multiple things, managing bands, working at a PR company, you know, doing the label, like you have to be able to, you know, juggle a bunch of different things. So it sounds like that kind of cultivated in you early. Oh, oh yeah, I guess. <laughs> in, in house parties specifically. Well, but still, but that is, but, but that is, you were, you know, that's a self-preservation thing. You know, you were just like looking at it where it's like, yeah, I would like to continue these parties. So I need to be meticulous about the way I'm taking care of my parents' house. Can I conference in my parents so they can hear how that helped form me as an adult? <laughs> totally. <laughs> I yeah. they need to hear that. <laughs> so send, send this to your mom as evidence. Be like, Hey, there's, there's a person that knows me later in life and thinks that those two are connected. <laughs> I'm not mad about it. Yeah, that's. I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, and so then, uh, like like you said, the the introduction you think to kind of independent music. Like, I mean, I'm guessing your parents weren't like you know completely entrenched in music and kind of introducing stuff to you. Um, you had to find it on your own. Actually, my dad was like super into music. That was like one of his hobbies, and he introduced me to the Dire Straits, which were like a huge impact on me. Um, Mark Knopfler is an insane guitar player and like I love I noticed I love like shreddy music and like weird time signatures and a lot of that came from the Dire Straits because they were just you know they were all over the place but they still made it sound like their melodies was beautiful and these big songs and rock arena songs that were just really complex um, so that was cool he tried to get me to like the Grateful Dead that did not take um, for so many reasons, sure. uh, but you know, like that love of an appreciation of music definitely came from my dad. Nice. Nice. And then, like you said, you think it was basically kind of a, a, a mix CD that was given to you that kind of started to introduce the independent side of things to you. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, cause Blink-22 was on the radio and, you know, Newfound Glory was touring with them. So that's how I heard about those bands. But then my cousin kind of gave me the, uh, the intro, which was like, he's like, here's Goldfinger. And I'm like, this is awesome. Right. <laughs> I love that. I, I always find the conversations I have with people's kind of introduction to, you know, this style of music. So, uh, enlightening just because you're getting into this music 
devoid of any sort of real context, you know, you're just finding it because you'd like it. And it's not like you're looking at like, Oh, it's not cool to like Goldfinger or whatever. You're just like, no, this is really good. And like, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, it's impossible to shut off the, the, you know, the judgmental side of things that people start to impart on you because you grow older and you shouldn't like certain bands. But I, I think it's, you know, devoid of context. Liking of music is great. Yeah. It was also interesting. Like, I, I love hearing how kids now find music because, like, I found punk when I was 13, 14. So it's like kids are finding it totally differently now um, through social media that just didn't exist when I was younger. And it's it's kind of neat to watch it change and evolve and try to find new ways to find these kids and get them into the music that we're working with. It's, it's a whole new world. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is. And I, I think it's like... To, to me, the th- the common uh, not yeah the common thought that I have on this is like there's no um, you know there the, since there's such a myriad of choices for people to consume you know music and culture you know you kind of have to there's no you know people that just rely on Spotify algorithms or just rely on you know YouTube spitting back a video at them are not going to have the same experience as people that are you know talking to their friends on social media by what bands they like. It's kind of this, you know, it's like a, a pastiche of all of these influences that ultimately will lead people to check out a band that just released a record on equal vision. You know, it's like, you got to be present everywhere in order to be mm-hmm. somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, but I still feel like a lot of it comes back to touring, you know, and just the best thing you can do with a lot of these bands is just tour. Yeah. Getting people's faces. Yeah. Whatever that, mm-hmm. even if you're playing to 10 people, it's like, well, this, hopefully those 10 people will turn into 20 next time. Yeah. Um, and so you, as you start to go to shows and, and start to really, you know, become, uh, you know, ingrained in the scene because you were, you know, you were putting on shows and stuff like that. Um, I, I guess what inspired you to put on shows? Like, like you said, it was kind of a reaction to the fact that you were surrounded by Scott and you didn't exactly want <laughs> to be going to Scott shows all the time. Um, <laughs> I like ska, but I liked punk too. And it was just like, okay. So I found my friends who played in punk bands and would throw shows for them. And then I started bringing in bands from out of town, like the low budgets from Philly were one of my favorites. I'd have them come play. Um, My friends played in a band called the ghouls. I would have them come play from Philly and it just kind of grew. And all of a sudden it was like a hundred to 200 kids at every show. That's really cool. Did you I guess, did you feel like you were accomplishing something? Like, did it feel, um, like, did you recognize what you were doing or was it just like kind of autopilot? You're like, I'm just doing this because I'm already doing it. Yeah, it was kind of the second, like, I didn't really care. I was just like happy that I could keep doing it and I wasn't losing money anymore on like venue rentals. Um, so it was, it was fine. (laughs) It was just like, I'm just like, this is happening. That's cool. Sure. Yeah. You're like, this. It, it's cool that I get to go to a show and I'm, I'm paying out these bands and I'm kind of experiencing all this. That's, that's really cool. Um, yeah. and like, like you said, you enjoyed school and you were, you know, academic. Um, but what was kind of the, the path, um, that you were setting forth as far as like, Oh, this is what I may be thinking about doing for a career or was the music industry kind of always what you had your sights set on? When I was 15, I knew that I wanted to work in music. I like, I felt really lucky that I knew early on because I went to high school with a lot of people and I would ask them and they like, I don't know what I want to do. And I'm like, how do you not know what you want to do? You should just know by now. And it's like, not everybody felt that way because I was just lucky to discover something I was passionate about and to just start doing it. 
Yeah, totally. <laughs> it is funny when people, uh, yeah, because most people, you know, wait until their fourth year of college to be like, oh, I guess I got to figure out something, even though they may have already decided their major and, you know, <laughs> have already been far on their way with that particular uh, career. But mm-hmm. yeah, it it is weird when people find their thing so early in life and are just like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll that's, that's what I'm going to do. So I'll figure out what that means as I go on. Yeah. And it's like, as I started doing more things in music, I realized how many jobs and different opportunities there were. And it wasn't just like, okay, you can just do this. It's like, well, there's like so many different levels to music and you can work in live music or recorded music or you can work as a manager or whatever. It's just like you can do licensing. There's just so many different opportunities. And it was just, I tried out a bunch of different things and I'm still trying out things, you know? So it's like, I don't know. It's kind of cool that you never have to settle. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do this one job for the rest of my life. Yeah, Definitely. The uh, did you ever want to play in a band or anything like that, or is that something that was just not part of your radar because you didn't play an instrument or something? Oh, I've been in several terrible bands that oh, no one will ever hear. And it's fine. <laughs> oh man, that's <laughs> like, did you actually uh, like put out stuff and play shows and everything, or was this more relegated to you know garages? Oh no, we play shows. I, there's music that I've taken down off the internet. Um, <laughs> certain people have it. And they're the devil, and I wish they didn't have it, and that's fine. Um, what, it's what, cool. What were? You, uh, uh, yeah, it sounds, <laughs> sounds like I've hit on a real sore spot. <laughs> what? Um, you don't have to reveal the band name because obviously you won't. I understand that. But what? Yeah. Uh, st- stylistically, what were you trying to go for? Um, I was definitely in a folk punk band in college. I feel like a lot of people were in that time. So okay. yeah, played with ghost mice. A couple oh. of other bands in that world. Oh, okay. Well, that, that's yeah. not that's not the first thing that I would have predicted. I definitely would have think that you know you just whatever in a sloppy punk band or something. That was high school. Yeah, I was in like an all girl sloppy punk band in high school. We were terrible, but we did a really great cover of Tsunami Bomb, and that's all that matters. Oh, wow! <laughs> another 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 deep cut, Tsunami Bomb. They were. <laughs> that I'm was, here for it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> For sure. I definitely saw that band many times being from Southern California because they always were kind of uh, grandfathered into the, uh, you know, ska punk scene down here and always played just millions of shows with, you know, a variety of different bands. And I can't say I ever cared for them, but, you know, I appreciated the fact that, like, they were really talented at what they did. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Not into it, but cool. Yeah, they wrote a lot of catchy songs. I never got to see them. Um, but now that I live in California, you'd think that would change. So hopefully soon. Yeah, I'll they, get to see them live. They play. Yeah, I think they play like one or two shows a year. So you got to keep your ear to the ground. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> yeah, you're there. <laughs> um, and so, what what college did you go to? I went to Drexel. Okay, and that that's very yeah. known for fostering a music industry program and uh, I guess discipline within that. Did, is that the program that you pursued, or did you do something tangential to that? No, that's the program I was in. I actually didn't get in at first. Um, And I got overturned at some point and was allowed in. But at first they accepted me for photography. So it kind of like that was like such a bummer. But like eventually I got in and I became really active in the program and ended up working in the music industry, which was really awesome. But yeah, like the program was cool. I feel like it was definitely one of those things that was like, just like a way for you to do internships and 
get relationships so that you would have a job out of college. Um, cause like the program itself is kind of like, okay, here's like the simple, like basics of everything, but you learn most of this stuff on the go. And as you're doing it, um, cause it's not like a science. Yeah, true. I, I think a lot of people, I mean, granted, you know, Drexel is definitely one that, uh, like you said, is trying to create relationships for the students there as opposed to, you know, schools that whatever, you know, maybe five or 10 years prior, they did offer some sort of music industry course or class. And it, you know, it was just, so, it's either really outdated or just something that, like you said, like, how are you going to teach like, you know, A&R, like, well, it's not like someone could get up there and be like, oh, here's how you apply your, your, your golden ear to the music industry or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, what was cool about the program is there were a lot of like like classes that were more like clubs where you did the work. So like there was a booking agency that I did. And um, so like when I was putting on shows in Philly at some point, um, a band asked me and my partner who were, who were doing shows in Philly to just start booking tours for them. And then next thing I know, we were like, booking us tours for street punk bands, like some of the punk core bands and, uh, SOS records bands. And that was cool. Um, and like from there, then I went to college and they were like, Oh, we have this booking agency. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'll do that. Um, yeah, no, that, that you actually, I said, I I completely botched the name of the record label because I said virus records. Virus was a band on punk core. Punk punk core was good. Yeah. I appreciate you not calling me out on that. (laughs) I feel you, (laughs) but I'm here for you. Ray. (laughs) And I appreciate that. But yeah, well, that's really cool that like you could, you already had experience with this stuff. So you could walk in there feeling somewhat confident and then being able to like actually do it in a disciplined, you know, college like atmosphere. It must've been pretty cool. Well, when I went in, they were like, this is how you're supposed to do it. And I'm like, Oh, (laughs) I'm like, okay, that's cool. I didn't do it like that, but that's fine. (laughs) But it was cool to like learn and be able to apply and, you know, have a contract that was better written than my own. Yeah. No, that's cool (laughs) that you, yeah. I mean, it's just great that you can actually feel like you can apply what you are learning there to the things that you've already done in, you know, a not a quote unquote non-professional manner, even though you were still getting the things done, which is cool. Yeah. Um, and so uh, th- this is kind of a overarching, uh, observation cause you kind of, you know, hit it, hit on a few of these things already where, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, now more than ever, it's becoming increasingly difficult to, you know, work in the, you know, independent music world. Um, than, you know, say 10 or 15 years ago, just because even though there's, like you said, there's more options out there and there's a lot of lateral movement that people can do once they're in the music industry, it seems like the, the start that people want to find via internships or whatever, it's just, you know, it's even harder than what it used to be. It, it, would you agree with that? Or is that something that maybe it's, you know, there's just different, I guess, ways about it now. I don't know because there are still kids I'm meeting like that are young that are passionate. And it's like, I feel like you just have to want to do it. Cause there are a lot of people when I went to school for music, that were like, I want to be in the music industry, but they didn't want to have internships. They didn't want to work for free. And they just had all these assumptions and they're like, okay, if I just do an internship for one summer at Atlantic records, they're going to hire me. And I'm like, no, they're not. 
You know, that's not how it works. If it does, you're incredibly lucky. Like you have to put in a lot of time and start your own businesses and fail your own businesses and, you know, just keep working and trying new things. And there are kids that are still doing that. And I see those, the ones that are getting jobs and like, you know, working, we're, we're, we just recently hired somebody at EVR and that was what I was looking for. And it took me a while to find that person that I could see the hustle, you know, like you said earlier, you're like hustle. It's all about the hustle. Cause you know, if somebody who's going to work hard, you know, they're going to work hard for you and for the bands and like they care. Cause if you don't care and if you're not a hard worker, then it's not going to, you're not going to last. Yeah. It's definitely like as much as what you do in the independent music industry is a job. It's, like, you know, that it's not really, it's, it's all consuming where you're just like, well, yeah, this is like my life now. So I, yeah. I have to figure, <laughs> right. You have to figure out not only if you, you have to figure out like the balance that you're hopefully able to strike, but that mm-hmm. you eventually do, you, you apply the hustle, uh, you know, to the job, even though you would be doing it, even if you didn't have a job within that context. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like you have to devote yourself. And it took years for me to figure out like a work-life balance. And, you know, moving to L.A. was really helpful with that, I think. Interesting. Why, why would you say, why did the move, you think, allow you to be able to kind of strike that balance? There's more of a, the culture is different here than it is in New York. That's where true. Where New York was like, you left your desk for 15 minutes. Why? <laughs> 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 that's true that's true yeah you like what do you what do you mean you're leaving work at 8 p.m like there's still at least an hour of work worth of work you can do right and i think it's just it helped me realize that sometimes you have to work on yourself so that you can work on everything else and you have to be okay with you before you can help other people yeah very true very true um and so was the, um, you know, the, the, you started putting out records, uh, like I would say what, like 2009, 2010 is when you kind of started, uh, the la- the label on your own. I don't know. I was yeah. 22, 23 when I started the label cause I just graduated college. Um, I, I never know what year that was. That's, um, that's fine. Whatever we, we, we'll, <laughs> we'll call, we'll call it, uh, early 2010s. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, but yeah, I was 22. I'm 30 now. So eight years ago to 2010, I'd say. Yeah, there we go. Um, there you go. We can work. We can do math. This is great. <laughs> um, yeah, I started the label. I never wanted to start a label. I was always really against labels because I just was like wanted to do digital marketing and work in the more digital sphere because there was so much happening. Um, but I fell in love with Captain We're Sinking and I just was like, I have to be a part of it. And I'm like, I don't know how to be a part of this band. So small. And like, they hadn't really done anything yet. They just put up, um, a seven, like an EP online. So I went to a show, um, at five thirty eight Johnson in, uh, Brooklyn. It's like this DIY space. And I went up to them I'm like, hi, I'm Lisa. I really like your music. Can I put out your seven inch? They're like, what? Huh? Who are you? <laughs> um, <laughs> And then I went to another show, I think the next day and saw them again and asked them again. And then we struck up a relationship and I eventually put out a seven inch for them. Um, cause they were working with kiss of death records at the time. I'm putting another seven inch out, but I'm like, you didn't put that one out on vinyl. Can I do that? And they're like, yeah, I guess like just leave us alone kind of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, this, this girl keeps showing up to our shows offering to put out a record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Offering to, to put money, to throw money away, but I, it worked out well. And, 
you know, from there I signed, well, signed, whatever. Yeah, um, I never records. had it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put out records from a bunch of different bands. Uh, I did a split with mixtapes and direct hit. Um, trying to think of everything. Uh, Guacamora was a record that was really, I put out two records for them. They were like a big part of my life and friends of mine. And, um, they were so, they're such an awesome band. Uh, and then Tiny Moving Parts, who I now manage and work with, um, Candy Hearts, yeah, bunch well, of bands. Yeah, it's just, it, it, it's cool because the, uh, obviously putting out records is, uh, you know, in the same way that, you know, putting on shows is like such a thankless job. Like, you know, I mean, yes, the bands are appreciative, but it's not like, you know, very rarely do you get people, you know, thanking a record label for putting out their favorite record you know it's like maybe they'll be like oh yeah that label's cool but like there's no there's no outward uh exhibition of love that happens <laughs> on a continual basis towards a record label so the, that's not why you do it you know that's true you don't need the validation because you're just happy to help a band out that's true mm-hmm. the but it seems like you were always kind of attracted to the behind the scenes stuff uh, with bands rather than, you know, like you said, you know, playing in playing in your own musical projects or whatever. Um, did you like immediately kind of have a interest in that just because of, you know, you putting on shows and then, you know, the record putting out records um, that always seemed to be a part of you was uh, was that the case? Um, I'm not sure, because like when I was younger, I did theater when I was like in elementary school, I did theater in middle school. And then at some point I realized I wasn't good. So I started doing behind the scenes stuff, um, for theater. Like I would start out doing costumes and then like became like the assistant director and like all that kind of stuff. And like, I liked behind the scenes stuff because you got to do a lot more than just be like, so I wasn't really great at acting or singing or any of that. And they'd be like, they'd give you like the smallest part. Cause they were just like, they had to include everybody. So it was like, okay, I can do the smallest part or I can go behind the scenes. So I can get to do a lot more and experience a lot more and be a bigger part of it. And I think that's where that started. Got it. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and so then, you know, as you were doing the label, you were also, you know, figuring out kind of, you know, what it means to, you know, work with bands on a label level, but then you were also kind of flirting around with management, I think at that point too. And then the, you know, big picture PR, um, you know, work kind of came into play. Um, did, what did you, you know, I guess, what did you like slash dislike about, uh, PR, not specifically, you know, big picture, but just kind of the, uh, the hustle that is the, the PR industry. I respect people who do PR because what they do is something that uh, it's, it can be really special and you foster those relationships, but it's hard. Like it's not easy, um, having to pitch, and get turned down and there's expectations and there's a lot going on there. And, you know, it's just something that after a while I was like, I wanted to work more closely with the artist and be more hands-on and being a third party company was just not doing that. Got it. So you, you felt like even, you know, even though you were fostering these relationships and helping these bands out, it was, um, you know, as a transactional relationship, you couldn't have, you tried to have longer lasting uh, relationships with these people and you know you did on a personal level but not on a professional level well even then like um when you're doing pr it's hard to get close with the artist depending on the team like so i started at sneak attack media was my first job out of college and we were working with major label artists we were working with like in bigger indies and there were projects where i never talked 
to the band that I worked with once. It was crazy. And yeah, I'm like, that, why? That's, yeah, that's rough. So I'd be talking to their manager. I'd be talking just to the label and I'd be like, okay, well, <laughs> um, I can't really do my job because you're just telling me what the story is and that's not realistic. Um, and it would just get frustrating after a while working in that kind of atmosphere. Um, like I worked with some of my favorite bands and I got to meet them, but they didn't know who I was and they didn't know what I was doing and we didn't have a relationship and it was weird. Yeah, that's true. Like you've invested so much time on a thing and then you're excited, but then it's like, oh yeah, like, oh yeah, I've been shielded. Like, you know, these, these people that I I care immensely about artistically, like I have no idea. (laughs) that It wasn't like a, like an expectation, like, oh, they should know who I am. It was just like, I just felt like I wasn't really contributing that much. And I felt lucky to work with some of my favorite bands, but I realized I'd rather work with smaller bands and help them grow and be a part of their story. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then like, like I said, where you were, you know, kind of working on, on management as well. Um, and then, you know, you, you worked with, with Synergy for a long time, you know, before you, you are at where you're at right now with, uh, Equal Vision. Um, and you, you've been able to see bands, like you said, from the, you know, sort of baby ground level, um, all the way up to, you know, really, really large internationally, you know, renowned touring artists. Um, I guess kind of what, what surprised you about kind of like seeing bands on different levels, um, you know, kind of, kind of work, uh, it, your work alongside of them. What, what, what surprised you as you kind of noticed the differences in, or maybe lack of differences on bands of different levels? I've been really, really lucky to work with bands that didn't like, I mean, I've known citizens since they were babies. <laughs> um, I know I was listening to the podcast you did with Matt Caracas and he talked about, um, sorry, I keep ref- referring to your past podcast, but it's, Hey, it's um, <laughs> these are, they're relevant topics. It makes sense. <laughs> um, but I was listening to the Caracas podcast where he talks about when Avange came out to see them on like one of their first tours. And I've known Avange for many years and she invited, she, I lived down the street from the venue and she's like, do you want to come along? And I fell in love with the band then. Um, so I was like helping out on the side cause I wasn't managing bands yet. I was still doing like digital marketing and PR and Avon would be like, Oh, I need somebody to design a website. And I was like, Oh, I can figure out how to do the code and I would just do it. And I did like their website for youth and just being a part of that so early on and like then eventually becoming their day to day years later on their second album. Um, and then their third album, just being a part of that process and getting to know those guys like they're the same people they were when they were I mean they're obviously grown up and learned things but as people they haven't really they're still gracious and wonderful to work with sure sure and then yeah that like you said that kind of gets you that satisfaction of what you're talking about of the you know working from you know a a smaller level getting to know these people directly and then helping contribute in ways that you you know you felt like you couldn't in other areas yeah. And like getting to know like what, um, Nick from the band is handles a lot of the aesthetics and the vision and like getting to hear what his vision is and help him make that a reality was really cool. And something that I, that was one of my favorite parts of the job was like working with artists and being like, what do you want to do? What is your dream? And it's like, okay, well let's find out ways to, to accomplish that together and, you know, realize those goals. It was really cool. Yeah. And did you, 
what kind of difference did you notice when you were, you know, like working with, with bands that you, you know, you didn't have that long historical connection. You were just, you know, you, you started to work with because of, you know, someone picking up a band and you were helping on the day to day stuff. Um, you know, did you, was it, was it, I guess, difficult to adjust to that? Or was it like, no, I, I'm, you know, I, I know how to do this job and I'll just have to, you know, kind of play catch up in certain respects of getting to know these people. There were certain bands we would like pick up after they'd been with other managers or been doing themselves for a while. And it was clean. There was always some sort of cleanup of things that were happening, whether it was like ex members who were asking for money or, you know, there was like, you know, debts or whatever. But other than that, like it was, it was the same, you know, it was just like working with them to figure out what they wanted to do. Um, I worked with like a metalcore band and they were like, we want to do this. And it's like, okay, well, I don't know much about metalcore, but I'll learn and we'll try and help you out. Got it. That's cool. So it's like, you know, you will roll up the sleeves and do the proverbial work. Yeah. Yeah. And like, sometimes it worked out and sometimes it didn't. And you know, when the ones that worked, it was great. And the ones that didn't like, you just have to try and reapproach. Sure. Try again. And, and and it probably wasn't for lack of trying. It was like, well, everybody tried, you know, just sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. 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 Um, last few things I want to hit on was the, um, you know, now that you are, you know, working equal vision and you're seeing kind of this holistic picture of the way that the music industry works, you know, from the management side of things to, you know, working in PR and, and, um, just kind of seeing how all of these, uh, things work. Um, you know, I, I presume you feel like that's, that's benefited you to where, you know, you feel a little more confident in the role that you're in now. Um, and then also kind of what has surprised you about, you know, starting to work uh, at a label and seeing kind of the, the flip side of what you were dealing with on, on the management and PR side. I like working at a label. I never thought I would, but I do because I mean, I'm still learning things because when I ran my little label, like we didn't have distribution and now we work with like a major distributor and it's really cool to see how that works. And I'm, learning what ISRC codes are because I never knew. But, you know, um, there's just like all these little things that these people have been doing for years and years. And it's really cool working at a label where the staff has been there for a long time. Most of the staff has been there for at least 10 years. Um, So they've been a part of some really big releases and finding a lot of really cool bands. Um, But my role and what I'm doing is really cool because it's almost like management because I'm a product manager, except you just do it for the release. So you're not handling tour merch. You're not handling, like you still help get tours, but you're not handling like a lot of like logistics of the touring. Um, but you kind of get to still do all the marketing, a lot of the creative and, um, that, that side of things. Sure. Sure. And and there have, there hasn't been anything like incredibly surprising that you're like, Oh wow. Like I never thought that this was going to be a part of my job or that this was what a label did. No, I mean, cause like the bands that synergy works with and that I've been lucky to be a part of a lot of those bands aren't on labels with huge staffs. And that's cool because it gives them a lot of flexibility to kind of do whatever they want. Um, but it also put a lot of the, the work on management to be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to go do this. I have to do that. And like, I have to go find somebody to license their record to overseas. And, you know, um, I have to pick out the publicist and then coordinate everything with the publicist. And I have to do all the graph, like hire somebody to do all the graphics. And that's fine. You know, that's cool. Um, the labels paid for most of it, all of it. And it was just like 
it's kind of just doing the same stuff, but from within the label. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and the last thing I want to hit on was the, um, I, I always, usually I'm interviewing, you know, people that are, are, you know, involved in the actual, uh, creation of music from, you know, playing in bands or whatever. And so I think the people, you know, such as, you know, myself and yourself that have worked behind the scenes, um, you know, always have these things that they reflect on and like, oh man, like I made this, you know, huge mistake when I started working at the label or I started doing, you know, putting on shows or whatever that is like very, uh, instructive over, um, their experiences moving forward where it's like, you know, look, whatever, you know, you, you book a, a hall for, you know, $500 and then you only make $300 at the show and you're just like, Oh, <laughs> well, uh, looks like I got to find $200 from somewhere else or whatever. Um, what, what sort of mistakes, uh, that did you make early on in your, or, or maybe even, you know, not that long ago that you were like, Oh wow. Like that was very, uh, instructive <laughs> that I was, oh, man. <laughs> cause I mean, everybody, everybody walks into it, but, um, and, and I'm not doing this to be like, Oh yeah, Lisa, you're so dumb. So t- talk to me about your mistakes. <laughs> but, um, I just think those are always really uh, insightful and instructive. I mean, I think overall, I made a lot of mistakes in my career, but a lot of, most people have, and I think that's how you learn. Um, it took me a long, a long time to learn even that as well. And that's something that like, and now that I'm older, I'm like, it's okay to fail because if you don't fail, you don't learn. And people who don't fail, I feel like they never learn and they get stuck. So, um, I'm thankful for my mistakes that I've made. Some of them have cost me a lot of money, um, and a lot of time and that's okay. But if you're asking for one in particular, um, I'd say ordering 500 LPs for a band from the UK, who only toured here once for like a week was a bad idea. <laughs> hey, but you, you had to get the, you had to get that vinyl press, right? <laughs> uh, I carried those across the, across the U S with me when I moved. And then eventually I just, I was able to just, I gave them to somebody out to another label. Um, I think they ended up working with another label in the U in the U S and I was like, do you want all their old LPs? I'll sell them to you for the price of shipping. I just, I know you don't, you're not going to buy all of them and your friends. So just take them, please. I, I love that. Yeah. Cause those are, you know, everybody experiences those things where it's like, Oh yeah. Like I sh- shouldn't have done that. I mean, I was excited. So I did that, but like, yeah, in retrospect, Oh yeah, maybe, maybe it should have, uh, either said, Oh, let's hold off. Like maybe, <laughs> maybe let's wait a little bit. Yeah. No. Um, but I was young and I was like, I really like this band and I'm doing it for everybody else. So I should just treat everybody the same. And it's like, well, those bands are touring. So maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, it's okay. You learned and you obviously got rid of the LP. So that's a, that's a positive thing. That's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a <laughs> net win for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One way or another. It's okay. Um, <laughs> shit happens. Yeah, exactly. Well, Lisa, this has been extremely fun. I appreciate you uh, wanting to, <laughs> wanting to do this, and uh, thank you for walking me through all the uh, the fun areas in your life. Oh, thanks for having me, Ray. It's nice to chat. Yeah, there we go. So, thank you, Lisa, because I know that this was uh, you know not thrown together, but this was uh, you know kind of a a, a last minute thing and switching schedules around. And, and anyways, I appreciate you, Lisa, coming on the show. Hopefully, you uh, learned a lot there. I definitely know that I did myself. And uh, what do you got? What do what do I got? What do you got? I'm pointing at you. What do you got for next week? Oh, you're gonna listen to the show? Okay, great, perfect. And you're wondering what the guest is. 
Jake Brennan. This is a big one for me personally. Uh, Jake Brennan is not a household name. Like you probably have no idea who I'm talking about, but let me set it up appropriately. He is the host of a podcast called Disgraceland, which is a combination true crime slash a uh, music show in which he takes these figures in music from Jerry Lee Lewis to Bob Marley. Um, so many interesting people that, you know, you, you feel like you got a good sense of who they are, but then kind of really explores the seedy underbelly and the, the crime <laughs> and horrible behaviors that many of these people have had. And uh, yeah, it's just a very, very engaging podcast. And that came into my ecosystem from my day job. But then I was like, I, after listening to a couple of episodes, I was like, I think this guy is someone who is involved in independent music. Dove a little deeper. Turns out he is the vocalist or was a vocalist for one of my, uh, I wouldn't say all time favorite bands, but definitely a very, very important band to me. A band called Cast Iron Hike. Um, very, um, underrated, I guess, or ignored in many respects, but, uh, Jake was a great interview and, uh, that's what we got for next week. Okay. All right. Well, you, I'm pointing at you, whatever you're doing, walking, running, just hanging out, please be safe. Okay. And I'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw podcast network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.